0: as, As Abby talked about in the children's message, families have distinguishing traits, that they're all different kinds of traits, that maybe your family has a very distinctive nose, that everyone's got that nose, or maybe everyone's got the same eyebrows or eyebrow, or maybe you have the same forehead or five head as people in your family. But the traits aren't always physical that distinguish us. They can be, you know, none, uh, not the kind of physical traits. They could be more things like talking with your hands and personality. They could be that everyone in your family is incredibly shy. Or maybe everyone in your family is just gifted in music and then other families can't carry a tune in a bucket. See, families share distinctive traits. But what about God's family? See, God's family encompasses people from every nation all around the world from all time periods. So what distinguishes God's family? What is that trait that God's family has that distinguishes them, that makes them look like one another, seem like one another? What is that family trait? Well, today we're continuing our look at the New Testament book, 1 John and we're going to see what that family trait is. So we've been looking at the book of 1 John. It's near the back of the Bible, if you'd like to open your Bibles. It's after 1 and 2 Peter, and it's before Revelation. It's written by the Apostle John, who also wrote our New Testament reading from the Gospel of John. And today we're looking at 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 10. And so I want us thinking about this family trait, that what do children of God do that makes them like their heavenly Father. So hear the word of the Lord. 1 John 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 10. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for speaking to us and speaking through the apostles, that we can have your word recorded for us today, that we know what you want to say to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to hear your word, that your spirit would be moving and active, using me in spite of my own weakness and my sins to faithfully proclaim your word, and that we would hear it as your word, for it is powerful and it is life-giving. So may our hearts and minds be open to receive it and to be shaped by your word, to even be born again. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we think about these family traits, even in our own families, these family traits have to start from somewhere. So our passage first helps us to see the beginning of our family traits, and then it helps us see how we grow into these family traits, how they become more and more evident in our lives until finally it's like, yep. That's the family trait right there. We see its appearance. We finally see its evidence in the life. So birth, growth, and its appearance. And what we see from the passage is that the family trait of God's family is righteousness. Righteousness. Now righteousness is one of those words that the Bible uses a whole lot. And we don't necessarily use a whole lot today in our culture. And so we're not always sure what righteousness is. Well, righteousness is the quality in the Bible of being perfectly good and innocent. It is being in the right with both God and others around you. It's having no sin, no fault. It's more than just neutral. It is good, holy. It is being completely in the right, according to God and his law. And we see that this is the trait. We see that here early in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Here's what John writes. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So when Jesus returns as he promised, we can have confidence that we are part of that family if we are righteous like he is righteous. But at the end of verse 29, John tells us where this trait comes from, how we get this righteousness. That it is not something we necessarily develop on our own, but it is something that happens to those who are born of him. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is the language our New Testament reading from John 3 talked about when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus. That Nicodemus pretty much came in and said to Jesus, hey, I know people aren't really liking you, but we recognize that you're a pretty cool dude. And Jesus says, you need to be born again. I'm sorry, wait, what? We weren't even talking about that. And Jesus introduces this concept to challenge him that, yeah, you think you know what I'm about. No, it means being born again. And Nicodemus can't understand it. And I think we understand that. See, we're used to thinking of righteousness in active terms. It's something you do. You obey God, you follow Jesus, you do good works. We expect we ought to do something, and even more, we expect we should be able to do something, but that's the opposite of what John is saying here. See, being born, at least from my recollection, is a very passive experience. You know, you guys might not remember, but I I do. See, being born is not something where the child is really an active participant, The child didn't play much of a part in conception, the child didn't do a whole lot to grow, and while the child is active inside the womb, the child really isn't getting bigger on its own and working out and pumping iron, though it feels like it sometimes, I hear. And then when the child is born, it's not like the child is a swimmer that is pushing off of the wall and just exiting the birth canal with all of that child's effort, See, being born is a passive experience. We come into our family passively. Whether we are born or adopted into our family, we are brought into the family by someone else's action. It is not our action. It is someone else's. We are quite passive in the process. And so what John is saying here is that to exhibit the family trait of righteousness, we need to be born into the family. We must be brought in. And what John is telling his readers in the church he's writing to is that God has done this for them. That they are God's children. Here's how chapter 3 starts. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. He's writing to fellow Christians and saying you are children of God. Not you will be children of God someday, but you are, that he calls us children already. That yes, there is more to come, but even right now, those who believe in Jesus and have been born again in the Spirit are God's children. And this is possible through what the Father has done for us in Jesus, that through Jesus and his sacrificial death, we become children of God adopted into his family. That God doesn't accept resumes for childhood and, you know, ask us, you know, look at our qualifications and say, all right, well, you can be my child now. God loves us before we do any good. There's no application. There's no interview. There's no waiting for the acceptance letter to God's children. See, Jesus is the way we become God's children. It's not through what we do. It is through what he has done. It is is believing that he has done what is necessary to be in the family. That we want to think we're good enough to earn a spot in the family, but John says that nothing short of being born again by trusting in what Jesus has done for you brings you into the family. We can't do that. That's not our part. That's his part. Our part is to believe that God has the supernatural birthing power that comes from hearing about Jesus Christ and what he has done. And our role is to trust that, to trust and believe. And so once we are born into this family, we can begin practicing righteousness, exhibiting the family trait. But our experience of trying to be righteous is likely not that great. We can feel like we're not the children of God. We can see the sin in our own lives and we don't really feel like we're part of God's family. And so we're trying to adjust to life in God's family. And John speaks to this in verses 1 and 2. He's like, I understand the world doesn't like you. The world hates you because it hated him. But I also understand that you are not yet as righteous and pure as Jesus is. That when he comes back, you will finally be pure and righteous as Jesus is. That we are in this tension between two families that we feel like we don't fit in the world and yet we don't fit in God's family either because we don't measure up. We don't seem worthy of that family because we still struggle. We still suffer. We still doubt. We still sin. And that's part of growing in this family trait. See, once God brings us into the family, he calls us to grow in the family trait of righteousness. And that's where we run into our sin problem. See, John tells us that we are to purify ourselves as he is pure, and then immediately jumps into this lengthy discussion on the problem of sin. Because sin is the opposite of God's family trait. That sin and righteousness are opposite things, that if righteousness is being completely right according to the law of God, then sin is disobeying the God of the law of God and rebelling against him. Those are opposite things. Here's what he writes in verses four and five. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, that sin is lawlessness. And you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So just from those two verses, we see how opposed sin is to righteousness. It's opposed to God's law, to God's mission, and to God's character. John calls sin lawlessness, that sin takes God's law and just tears it up. I don't want this law. I disregard it. I don't need it. I disobey it. I know that's what you want me to do. I know that's what life is supposed to be for me, but I just don't want it. It's lawlessness. It's getting rid of the law, rebelling against our creator who has made us for a relationship with him. But sin's not just against God's law. It's against his mission. It's interesting in here. There's a a different word. You see, John writes that Jesus appeared in order to take away sin. He doesn't say to forgive sins. See, Jesus did come to forgive sins. He's not denying that, but he's saying something in addition, that Jesus didn't just want to forgive our sins. He wanted to take them away, to make them less prevalent, so that we would not sin as much, so that his people would practice righteousness rather than sin, that that was part of God's mission when Jesus came to earth is that he wanted to bring about a kingdom of righteousness of people who would love God's law but sin is also opposed to God's character it's against the family trait that John writes that there's no sin in Jesus and if we are called to be like Jesus then if Jesus has no sin we should not want to have sin see parents want our children to model themselves after our good traits not the bad ones, the, those traits, as Abby was saying. We, but we want to see the good in them, the good that we have or our spouse has, that we want to see that in them as we raise them. And in the same way, God wants to see his children be more and more like him. And sinning makes us unlike God. And so sin is opposed to righteousness. And John is saying, don't you see that the family trait that children are called to live into righteousness and not into sin. But then we get verses 6 and 7. And that's where we really start to just clench up a little bit and get nervous. Because these verses are a little scary. Here's what it says. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So on the surface, these seem really strong that John is writing that if you claim to know Jesus, if you claim to abide in him, then you will not keep on sinning. And I think our initial reaction, other than to maybe erase that, is to try and tell John to calm down. That seems like an impossible standard that John can't expect us to be perfect and never sin again. I agree. John must mean something different. In chapter 1, we saw him say that we are a liar if we say we have no sin. So clearly he recognizes that Christians will still struggle with sin in some way. So when he's saying that believers will not keep on sinning, John is pointing to a change in attitude. That believers now, knowing this family trait of righteousness, will not want to keep on sinning because they recognize it does not please God and it has a destructive capacity that once the Holy Spirit is in our lives, we begin to repent of sin and we want to live lives according to God's law. It's a change of attitude. But in our trying to make these verses a little easier to swallow, we might, we might make them too easy. See, this verse really makes us stop and make us think about how do we view sin? Do we view sin as something that is completely opposed to God and His purposes? Or is it just something we can say a quick prayer and ask Jesus for forgiveness for and it's not that big of a deal? See, too often we can let sin stick around in our lives. Too often, we don't see how much sin grieves God and how it can damage our lives. And so for those of us who are Christians, do we hate the sin in our lives? Do we see that sin is completely opposed to God's will? Do we cry out to God for help when we are in sin and say, please, God, help me to stop sinning? I hate sinning. It hurts you, it hurts me, it hurts others. It grieves me. When we fall back into a sinful habit, does it anger you or is it just another day that doesn't really rile you up at all? Does sin drive you to repentance and confession? John wants us to hate sin and to love righteousness. He is calling us to practice righteousness Righteousness, Not a life of absolute perfect holiness. For he tells us that we will sin and we do have Jesus who will forgive us. But we are called to righteousness to purify ourselves as he is pure. And so one of the ways I try and encourage people is that if you are struggling with sin, if there's sin in your life and you hate it and you're fighting against it and it just pains you when you sin, you're on the right track. Because you've developed a hatred and a distaste for sin. That's what Paul speaks of in Romans 7 when he recognizes that the spirit in him really wants to obey God. And yet this other man, this other nature, this other sinner inside of him is falling over and trying to find sin. That we should struggle against and hate the sin in our lives. It's opposed to everything that God wants for us. It's not something to mess around with. It is something to avoid, to not take cavalierly. Because the last verses in our passage today tell us that if we take sin too cavalierly, it can cause concern that maybe we haven't been born of God, that maybe we don't know the saving love of Jesus Christ. That if we're not exhibiting the family trait of God's people, are we in God's family? And so we get to another selection here of verses in verses 8 through 10 where they're hard to hear. Here we see them. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Do you know how hard it is to read that and not... Make it sound like of the devil, and sound like really like a caricature. Like you, we got antichrists in the passage last week, and we get the devil this week. It's just a real exciting group of passages here that we're given in Scripture, and yet it's God's word for us, and we need to hear it in spite of the difficulties we find in the passage. See, John here is presenting two families, two types of children, two types of behavior. And two patriarchs, one of them is God and one is the devil. And the implication of the passage is that everyone who has ever lived falls into one family or the other. That a third family is not mentioned. It is one or the other. And we just, we start to lose it. And I can understand that. This seems so strong that... I would guess it's our experience that we know many people who seem like good, nice people who are not Christians and don't believe in Jesus. And they are not devil worshippers drinking pig's blood and having, you know, satanic dances around some kind of fire. And so we look at this and we're like, what about all, like, the good, nice people in the world who don't believe in Jesus? Whether they're Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or Mormons or atheists, you know, aren't there many different families? John, is it really just God or the devil? scripture says it's god or the devil you are born of god or you are not and all throughout scripture we see this balance between there are only two options god's way or no way see in the ten commandments the very first commandment was you shall have no other gods before me it is god alone or nothing and yet that didn't stop our buddy Abijam and all the other kings of Israel from saying, You know what, this worshiping God stuff is cool, but this temple of Baal, I think it's gonna get a get big press. It's gonna be real exciting, gonna have a lot of people run into it. it, might bring in some money for the kingdom, it's gonna be great. And God consistently condemned anything other than being with him alone. It was God or nothing. Oh, but that's just the Old Testament, right? I mean, Jesus is much more loving than that. He's open and he's, you know, kind to all people. Yes, he is. And yet in Matthew 25, Jesus tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. And he says on the last judgment day, as John's saying, when he appears, he will separate the sheep, the faithful children of God, from the goats, those who are not the faithful children of God. For those of us who may be familiar with farming around here, There are no horses mentioned, or cows, or chickens, or pigs. There seem to be two animals, the sheep and the goats. There is no third option. And so all throughout Scripture, we see there are two choices, God or nothing. And so what this passage teaches us is that unless you are born of God through the saving work of Jesus Christ... You're a child of the devil. Again, that's that's really hard to say. That is one of the hardest things for us to hear in our culture today, to say something like that. And so we want John to just tone it down. John didn't know how many nice people would be around. But maybe it's not John who needs to tone it down. Maybe we need to change our understanding of sin and its effects on humanity. One of the questions I love to ask people uh, as it concerns Christianity and just really life in general is I like to ask people, do you believe that people are basically good? It's a great one for teenagers because the answer is yes, and they're like living proof that people are not basically good. But really, do you believe people are basically good? Do you believe that people can be good if they want to be? do you think that sin is only the really bad stuff, like the stuff that gets you put in prison? Or do you believe that in light of the fall, we've inherited a family trait from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and so we are all born sinners into the world, no matter how young we are. And that each and every person comes into this world corrupted and fallen in sin. And that unless we are born again, not just that first time, and you're so cute, but that second time through Jesus Christ, that we are left out of the family of God. That there's no third family. There are only two types of children. There's the family of the devil whose children practice sin just as he has sinned from the beginning, And there's the family of God whose children practice righteousness as he is righteous. And so it is by the actions of the children that you can see, or as John says, it is evident who is in which family. See, that's a consistent concern we've seen in John's letter here. That there was a group that broke away from the church and they were calling themselves Christians. And John's saying that they had abandoned things. He was trying to help them discern between what is true and what is error. And John is telling them, you look at their practice. Are they people who practice righteousness and don't like sin according to God's word? Or are they people who disregard God's word and what Jesus has come into the world to do? John is trying to give them evidence. To give them evidence to help see, are we children of God? Are others children of God? And not in a judgmental sort of way. See, that often is how we get into trouble here is we start pointing around and when we start calling people children of the devil, then that gets a little iffy because you're probably going to get punched in the face back. But we look not to judge, we look to save. That if you're not sure whether or not someone is a Christian, it should be like whether you're not sure whether or not someone is choking. You don't look at them and go, well, they're kind of exhibiting some signs of choking, but I'm just going to stay over here and see if they figure it out on their own. If there is doubt, you save. Same thing with drowning. Oh, that kid's underwater. He's been under there a long time, but he's got goggles on. Maybe he's just swimming around. I'm gonna, I think he's probably okay. No! You jump in and you save the child. And in the same way, if you're not sure, you jump in and you share that there is another family, a family of God, where righteousness is a beautiful gift that we are given in Jesus Christ. And we are adopted in, we don't earn our way in. And we're not here to be pointing fingers saying, children of the devil, we're here to say, there is room in the family, there are far more beds available, and we would love for you to come join us in the family. And I didn't get in because I made my way in and earned it. I got in because I was a sinner too and I was lost. See, John wants to assure us that the evidence of righteousness and sinning is a faithful test of what is true. And he shows us that in verse 9. John says this, This person cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. That God's seed, his spirit, abides in those people who have been born of God. So believers, do you hear that great promise? That you cannot keep on sinning because God's spirit is in you. The spirit will continue to poke and prod and frustrate you and throw up roadblocks and be like, nope, that's sin. You don't want to do that. Continue to lead you back to the word. Continue to lead you to the family of God where people can say to you, hey, man, that is sin and we love you. And it's probably not a good idea to keep doing that. That the spirit will work in us and lead us back to the truth that God's family trait is put in us. And so it will flow out of us and it will not let us continue to struggle with sin in that way. To continue to let it exist in our lives. That as Christians we are to live a life where we are continually growing in our hatred of sin. Not in others where we are getting better and better at finger pointing but in ourselves. We grow in our hatred of our own sin because we know we've been called for something different. And we know that God's spirit has given us the power and the attitude change to live in righteousness. He uses that change inside of us. See, John knows that it's going to be a lifelong struggle for all of us. He knows that until Jesus returns, we will not be what we want to be. He says this in verse 28. He wants his people to have confidence and not shrink from shame when Jesus returns. He wants us to know that we are unfinished projects. That if Jesus were returned today, if he were to come back today, if he were to appear right now today, I bet there are many of us who'd be like, man, I should have done so much more. I haven't been good enough. I haven't done nearly enough. But John is saying to them, I know you're not yet what you want to be, but you are God's children now. And you didn't earn your way into the family, so don't fear that you're going to earn your way out of it. Because as God's children, he's put his Holy Spirit in you to keep you from falling into sin and to lead you in a life of righteousness. And that is a lifelong growing of that family trait. And the purification will not be complete until the day that he returns and we see Jesus as he is. And when we see him, the glory and brilliance of that light will burn away all sin, weakness, sickness, And suffering in our lives. And so we are pure as he is pure. And so until that day, we work to get that started early. And we look to Jesus in the word. And we look to what God says about righteousness. And we ask the spirit, burn off all that is sin, all that is impure. And let me begin even now getting closer to righteousness. Because all eternity is going to be a beautiful time of righteousness with the Lord our God when all the family from all around the world and all through the ages get together in heaven, and yet yeah, we're going to look a different, and we might be speaking a bunch of different languages, and yet the fundamental likeness that we will all share is that we will be made like Jesus. We will be righteous as he is righteous. Let us seek to live that way now in the power of the Spirit until our Lord Jesus returns. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that you are righteous, and we thank you that you have put your seed into us as believers, that your spirit indwells us. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would please lead us in paths of righteousness. Change our desires so they desire what is good and not what is sinful. Lord, lead us to repentance, to continually look at Scripture and look at ourselves and say where we are in sin and turn from sin. Lord, may we do this humbly ourselves and not judgmentally towards others. Father, we pray also that Jesus would come back soon. We know the pain sin causes in this world. We know the pain it causes us. So we long for his return. But until he returns, oh Lord God, I pray that you would please bring about the new birth of many, that many who do not know you would come to know you and be born again hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation through the cross and the resurrection. Lord, may that word go forth in the power of your spirit and bring about new life that we can rejoice together with our family, with you, O Father, in Jesus' name, amen.